Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which I wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Thanks, Bruce. Happy New Year. Well, as you uh, can tell from what Bruce just read, we're back in 1 Corinthians in our series. We'll continue working it through. And as you heard, it's about our sexuality, and in particular, our sexuality in marriage. So I just wanted to say, if you have a, a young child with you, perhaps, and you're maybe not wanting them to sit through this, you're welcome to take them to Sunday school now. I just wanted to give you that option, uh, because we are going to dig into this passage and see what Paul has to say to us. One of the great privileges that I have to do as a pastor is do premarital counseling. Right now I'm working with four couples that are looking forward to their wedding day. We require couples who are getting married by a pastor at Cole to take a class that we provide for them called Fit to be Tied because we want to give them a biblical perspective of marriage. And then the pastor also meets with them several times. You see, I think this is getting more and more important in our culture. Since our culture, and I find more and more Christians today, do not understand God's view of marriage and our sexuality. Society's view of marriage and our sexuality has changed dramatically just in my lifetime. Marriage is now seen as either some kind of stamp of approval, uh, something that legitimizes a certain lifestyle, like those who want to have same-sex marriage. Why do they want same-sex marriage? Because they want some kind of legitimization. They want a stamp of approval on their immoral behavior. So marriage is seen as a, some kind of stamp of approval. Or marriage is seen today as expendable. Well, I'll try it on for a while. If it doesn't work that well, then... I'll ditch this person and either stay unmarried or maybe try someone else on for size. But marriage today in our culture is seen as expendable. Or 
Marriage today is seen as something totally unnecessary. After all, in today's culture, you can have sex, live together, have kids, get health benefits, buy a house together, etc., etc., without marriage. So why get married? Boise, this week, it was reported, it was number five of the most sexually active cities in America. Now, if you look closely at their study, you might consider some of their criteria as dubious. But at the same time, it does reflect the fact that in our culture, our kids, junior high, high school, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, are living in a culture in Boise, along with the rest of America, where the hookup culture is very common. What does that mean? It's their term for kind of one-night stands, you know? You just get together, have sex, and then go your way. There's no commitment, nothing. It's just something people do. In a blog called Sex is Cheap. (laughs) It's reported that a feminist writer, Hannah Rosen, wrote in the Atlantic Monthly, feminist writer wrote this, We are, in the world's estimation, a nation of prostitutes, and not even prostitutes with hearts of gold. But then she goes on to say, But is that so bad? To put it crudely, she writes, Feminist progress right now largely depends on the existence of the hookup culture. And to a surprising degree, it's women, not men, who are perpetuating the culture, especially in school, cannily manipulating it to make space for their success, always keeping their own ends in mind. For college girls these days, an overly serious suitor fills the same role as the accidental pregnancy did in the 19th century a danger to be avoided at all costs, lest it get in the way of a promising future. Christian commentator on that article says this, women like men before them could only reach this point by cheapening sex, by reducing it to purely physical pleasures. I'm finding that our culture is incredibly confused about our sexuality. And I'm finding that many Christians are as well. We're confused because there's so many changes and so many loud voices shouting at us what to believe and what to think. But as Christians, I think we are called to redeem marriage, to redeem our sexuality, and to bring this confusion into this confusion, the clarity of God's Word and to bring his perspective on marriage and our sexuality. Marriage is God's idea. He created it. He planned it. And so is our sexuality. And Paul, in our passage today, brings clarity, I think, to this area of our lives. The Corinthian church was also confused, as we tend to be, about marriage and about our sexuality. And so this passage really helps us understand God's design for those things and helps us understand how to redeem marriage and singleness for the kingdom of God. Lord, as we prepare to look into this passage together, I pray you would bring clarity, 
that your spirit would speak to each of our hearts and help us see where our thinking may be in error. It's been too influenced by the world. And may we learn what it means to really redeem marriage, that we might live as the people of God, the kingdom of God, in this confused and dark world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 1, Paul begins this way. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Just so you know, this signals a transition in the book of 1 Corinthians for Paul. Up to this point, he's been dealing with issues that he heard about going on in the church. There were a lot of problems. There was division, a lot of issues, and he'd heard about those. And so he addressed those in those first six chapters. But now he's addressing specific questions that they asked him concerning the matters you wrote. And then he quotes them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Your New American Standard may say it's not good for a man to touch a woman, but that particular phrase is used in New Testament Koine Greek always to talk about as a euphemism for sexual relations. So sexual relations is a good translation here. And the reason he's addressing this, remember, is because Corinth was a very corrupt, immoral society. As you recall, as we did the background on Corinth, throughout the Roman world, if you were to say you were Corinthianizing, it was a term for committing sexual immorality. If you were called a Corinthian girl, that was a way to call someone a prostitute. You see, Corinthian culture was very, very immoral. And so in chapter 6 and 7, Paul addresses two different groups of Christians that were really struggling with how to live in an immoral society. In chapter 6, there were some Christians, and Corey Fries talked about this, but it was a month ago, so I'll remind you. Chapter 6, there were some Christians that were saying, Hey, Jesus has forgiven us. We're free in Christ. God made us physical creatures, sexual creatures. And so because of our freedom in Christ, God will forgive us so we can live any way we want. We can sleep with prostitutes. We can do whatever. We live under grace. And Paul says that is wrong thinking. It overemphasizes the freedom we have in Christ. Paul's answer is, no, please don't live that way because immorality will destroy you. It does harm And sex unites you at a very soul level with whoever is your partner. Do you really want to be united to a prostitute? And then he goes on to say, you've been bought with a price. Jesus died for you. Your body is no longer your own. And your body is meant to be something that you use to glorify God. So that was his answer to those who were saying, hey, anything goes, we live under grace. But now this quote Clearly, what they wrote to him was kind of the other extreme. These are the Christians that are saying, well, our society is so corrupt. They, they misuse our sexuality. Therefore, Paul, isn't it better to not have sexual relations at all, even in marriage? Just completely stay away from that area. What does true godliness look like, Paul? Because sex is too worldly, it's too earthy, it's too physical, and we're trying to be otherworldly. 
You see, this tension is true for all of us as believers, right? We live in a culture that is immoral, that is corrupt, and so we struggle with this. What does it mean? How do we live by grace? And yet, how do we not give in to the things that can destroy us? What does true freedom look like for us? Are we free to sin? Or since the world tends to pervert and misuse everything it touches, should we completely avoid anything the world might misuse and pervert, including our sexuality? Those Christians who say that kind of thing have tried to make rules for us, have tried to say, oh, if you're really godly, you won't do this and this and this. You, you won't touch alcohol. You won't dance. You won't go to movies. You won't ever have sex. You won't, etc., etc. And they add to the list because they think that's maybe what godliness looks like. Well, make it very clear that Paul's response to that is, no, that's poor thinking. That's not what we're called to as believers. There's no true freedom or godliness in that. In Colossians chapter 2, he addresses this very thing. And in verse 20, he says, Why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. But get his last phrase. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul makes it very clear. Okay, the answer is not to completely avoid that. So there must be another way. There must be a third way. If we are going to live in this corrupt culture, what does he call us to? What is true freedom in Christ look like? See, true freedom in Christ doesn't mean I can do whatever I want, whatever feels good. That's not freedom. That's ultimately enslavement. I have more than once used a screwdriver as a hammer to drive a nail. I've broken some handles of screwdrivers. Now, I have freedom to do that, but is that real freedom for that screwdriver? No, it creates brokenness and destruction. <laughs> a screwdriver is most free when it's being used for what it was made for. And we are most free when we are living according to the way God created us to live in every area, including our sexuality. So Paul goes on to give us a beautiful picture, I think, of how we can live this out in marriage and respond to this corrupt culture in which we live. So he gives six, I'm going to give you six godly principles regarding sex and marriage that I see in this passage. Verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. First principle I see here, God loves marriage. He created it. He created a man for a woman. One woman, one man together. It's God's design. It's the normal plan of humankind since creation that is that a man and a woman would be committed, would be married to one another. Now, often the question comes up, well, what about the Old Testament? You know, the patriarchs, they had more than one wife. If you look closely at those passages, it never worked out well, folks. 
It never worked out well. It was never God's design. God's design was always one woman with one man. And it says here that it's very clear in the Greek that a man shall have one wife, his wife, and a wife shall have her husband. That word have has been picked up and used in the traditional marriage vows, the covenant. I choose you to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, etc., etc. To have and to hold. That word have has a picture of the covenant relationship that God designed marriage for. God loves it when we covenant with one another. That word means to commit to one another, to love another person, to stick by them no matter what. I think that's why the vows are important. And they need to be renewed in our hearts every day towards our spouse as we face difficulties and struggles in our lives. That's the foundation of a biblical marriage, that we commit to one another. And that commitment, that covenant, sees us through the storms of life. It's like the anchor that holds the boat firmly anchored to the bottom of the water as the storms come and the difficulties and the conflicts come in marriage. It's that, it's that commitment, that covenant that holds you firm and sees you through all the conflict and difficulties and storms of life. So the first principle we see is that God loves marriage. Second principle, God loves sex in the right context. God loves sex in the right context. Verse 2, but because of sexual immoralities, you should have, have one another. It's, again, it's speaking of that sexual relationship. You see, God gave us a strong sex drive. The urge to merge was his idea <laughs> from the very beginning. Interesting, biologists tell us that God put the most pleasurable nerve endings in two places, our tongues, God loves us to enjoy good food, and in our private parts, God loves sex. He wants us to enjoy it in the right context. Notice what Paul says here. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, because of immoralities, make sure you're committed to your spouse. You see, the world will throw a lot of options at us, won't it? There's a lot of opportunity to get your sexual desires met outside of the context of marriage. There are all kinds of illegitimate, immoral ways the world offers us for handling our sexual drive. There's the hookup culture. You can go to a bar downtown Boise and hook up really easily and quickly, if you should so choose. There's a temptation to adultery, step outside of marriage, get intimate with somebody else, premarital sex, pornography, self-satisfaction, and on and on. The world offers all kinds of illegitimate, immoral ways for trying to get your needs met. Let me just say, all of those, and this is Paul's perspective and God's perspective, all of those are very destructive. And a lot of the counseling I do, I have to deal with the baggage, with the wounds 
with the destruction that's left over from premarital sex, adultery, pornography, these other ways of trying to get our sexual needs met, they all do great harm. And if you are struggling in that, any of these areas, I encourage you to repent. I encourage you to get help. I encourage you to get some accountability partners. I encourage you to repent, turn your back on that kind of illegitimate way to get your sexual needs met and turn in other directions so God can begin the healing, redeeming process in your own heart. God's design is clear. He loves sex. But it's designed to be met and fulfilled only in one context, and that is in marriage, the covenant of marriage. And it's a protection for us against these illegitimate ways that we often try to get our sexual needs met. God loves marriage. God loves sex. Third, marriage is a debt of love. Verse 3, marriage is a debt of love. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Literally, the husband must pay back a debt to his wife. And the wife must pay back a debt to her husband in this physical, sexual area. Now, understand, first of all, what Paul's saying here is incredibly radical in this Greek culture because it was very man-centered and the man ruled in the home and he could demand whatever he wanted. And what he's saying here is, no, husband, you can't. In the Christian world, you are called to pay back a debt to your wife. When God chose you, when you committed your life to him, he became ruler over you and he said, you owe your wife the debt of love. You owe her to love her well, and you need to pay her what God, that debt that God has given you. Incredible picture of equality here for their culture. Absolute equality. Both owe each other the same debt of love, both husband and wife. This is amazing. And it's a radical view of our sexuality as well certainly for our thinking and our culture today, because what it says is, sex is not for my enjoyment, at least not primarily. Sex is a way for me to please my spouse, to bless them, to give them a taste of God's love for them. It's a debt of love that I owe. means I must be only concerned in that area about my spouse, about my wife and what pleases her. I need to give up my own rights and desire to seek to bless her. There is no room here for demanding my rights. This is a radical perspective even for today, isn't it? You see, God's way of marriage is that in every area, not just sex, but in every area, if I put my spouse first and I seek to bless him or her, in God's strength, then God will take care of my needs. I can trust him for that. But let me say this. This verse and the next one, you'll see in a moment, verse 4, have been misused, especially by men, 
to say, ah, see, your body's not your own. You owe me a debt of love. So I demand you meet my needs sexually whenever I want. And not just sexual needs, but other needs as well. Let me say to you, and again, it's normally a man saying that to a woman, though it can be the other way. If your spouse has said that to you, is saying that to you, is manipulating you and pressuring you to meet their needs, they're in violation of this. And let me tell you, what they are doing is abuse. There is no room in this passage to demand that your spouse meet your need. No room. And if you were doing that as a man, stop it. Repent. That's not a biblical marriage. That's abuse. The fourth principle, verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What's the principle? Marriage calls us to give up our rights. Biblical marriage calls us to give up our rights. You don't have authority over your own body. Now you can see where this could be misused. (laughs) But what he's saying here is this. Uh, You aren't in charge anymore of your own body. Your spouse does. In In other words, your body ultimately is God's. And he has given authority over your body to your spouse when you entered into that covenant of marriage. Therefore... Your body is to be used to bless your spouse, not to bless yourself. Sex is not to be used as some kind of a bribe. Well, I'm control. I'll give it to you if you do this for me. It's not to be used as an instrument of control. Stop depriving one another, he says. It's not to be used as an instrument of punishment. You did this, so you're sure not getting any from me. And on and on. It's very clear from the passage that our attitude must be, I want to use all that I am to show my spouse the love of Christ in every area, including in our sexual relationship. I want to be sensitive to their needs. I want to be sensitive to all the issues that come into our sexuality and pay attention and listen and seek to be a blessing to my spouse. Do you see how countercultural this is? Because our culture says, you own your own body. You can do whatever you want with it. You can have sex. You can have an abortion. You can do whatever because it's your body. And God says, no, it's not. God says, first, it's mine. That's the end of chapter 6. And secondly, it's your spouse's. You don't have the right to demand anything. In fact, marriage calls me to give up my rights. The fifth principle I see in this passage is that sex and marriage should not be withheld. It says that very clear. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. And literally, stop depriving one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says sex should be a normal part of your physical relationship. There is no reason, he says, 
to deprive your spouse. Now, I understand there may be physical issues that are unavoidable or certain things, but in general, there is no reason to deprive your spouse, he says, unless you together decide we will fast from that for a brief period of time so that we can seek God's heart in a particular area for a particular issue. Regular sex in marriage is the norm. Otherwise, he says real clearly, you are setting yourself up and your spouse up to be attacked by Satan. God wants us to be intimate regularly. Now let me say this, I I know that as a counselor that sex in marriage is often a thermometer of what's going on in the relationship as a whole. In other words, if you're struggling in that area, it's very likely you're struggling in other areas as well, in your communication. Maybe there's anger issues, insecurity issues, immorality, deep issues of shame in your heart from your past. Well, let me say, if you and your spouse are having problems in your sexual area, like some Christians I know who haven't slept together in years, let me say, get help. Find a good counselor. Talk to somebody. Get help so that you can work through some of those issues that are causing problems in your relationship. But realize, if you do so, you will almost for sure have to deal with some of the deeper issues in your own heart and the deeper struggles that are relational and personal issues within you. The final principle, verse 7, is that marriage is a gift from God. Verse 7, marriage is a gift from God. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, single. He talks about that in a minute, but... He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. The implication is singleness is a gift, but so is marriage. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. It's a place where God has given us an opportunity to join our souls, our hearts, and our bodies with another person, to to discern and, and learn what real intimacy is, to learn to give our lives away, to die to ourselves, to love another person well, to have our sexual needs met. There are all kinds of wonderful things about marriage. It is a gift and it needs to be celebrated in a world that doesn't understand God's design for marriage. We need to be having strong marriages as Christians because the world needs to know where sexual wholeness comes from, sexual beauty, fulfillment, and intimacy. We need more godly marriages to shine as lights in the darkness of a broken and confused world. But Paul goes on now to talk about the gift of singleness, that singleness is also a gift. And we in the Christian world have not done a very good job encouraging and loving our singles. And so this is an important passage for us to hear. Paul says, I wish you were all as I am. I'm a single man. There are wonderful benefits and advantages to being single. It is a gift from God. Now, the question comes up when you look at this passage, well, was Paul ever married? He's clearly single here, but was he ever married? Well, actually, most scholars think he probably was married before. 
because Paul was a Pharisee, Pharisees were always encouraged to be married. That was important. We think Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the supreme court, essentially, of the Jewish nation. And to be on the Sanhedrin, it was required that you be married because they believed that marriage made you a more sensitive and gentle and humble person. Amen? Amen. (laughs) So probably Paul was married at one point, but he's clearly not now, so either his wife died or perhaps she left him when he became a believer and had that radical transformation. We don't know for sure, but what we see now is that Paul is clearly enjoying his singleness. Singleness, as we will see in a couple of weeks, Paul comes back to it, allows you to be more fully devoted to God and serving Him. So let me say this, if you are single, see it as an opportunity to serve Him more fully now. And, and we in the church need to exalt those who are single, appreciate their singleness, appreciate their giftedness, not make them feel like somehow the odd person out because they're not married. We need to exalt them as single people. And then Paul goes on to say, address unmarried, widowed people. He says in verse 8 and 9, To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He says, are you single? Divorced, never been married, widowed. He says, see your singleness as something good, as a gift from God for the time being. Don't see yourself as an incomplete person, as less than whole because you're single, but instead use the opportunity as an opportunity to draw close to the Lord and get to know Him and love Him more intimately than you could if you were married. See it as a wonderful opportunity to do that. And I love the way I see that lived out in this church. Many of you that are single or widowed have used it as an opportunity, even in the loneliness, to drive yourself closer to the Lord and to trust Him and to serve Him in all kinds of marvelous ways. There's a widow's connection and those ladies serve in all kinds of wonderful ways. I think of my friend Deb Crum, who... It's no longer part of our body here. She's serving elsewhere, but as a single woman, always longing to be married, and yet she used it as an opportunity to draw close to the Lord and begin a ministry called Grace Tapestries. Now she travels around Idaho and in rural communities, started prayer ministries, and is doing all kinds of things to serve God. There's, I could give many examples, but let me just say that I think is what God calls us to as singles to look at an opportunity to serve God in some more profound ways than you could if you were married. But verse 9 says something interesting. It says, but if you have a strong sex drive, get married. Get married. Seek marriage. I know we can't always control that, but, but I think an indication of whether you have the gift of singleness or not is whether you have a strong sex drive. Because again, it's very clear, don't get that satisfied in an illegitimate way. Submit that to the Lord, and if you're single and you have a strong sex drive, look for an opportunity 
to be married. Marriage and sexuality are so misunderstood in today's culture, aren't they? People don't have a clue how to look at themselves, their sexuality, about marriage, and especially by today's young people. We are called as believers not to indulge in our sexuality like the world does. But we are also called not to just avoid the issue totally. But we are to live out to the fullest in a passionate way how God created us. As sexual beings who are in the context of marriage learning to use our sexuality to bless our spouse to give them a taste of God's incredible love for them and learn to give up our rights, demanding nothing, but walking in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior Jesus who gave up his rights for us and brought life and blessing to all of us. We have the same opportunity in our marriages as we learn to give up our rights, demand nothing, and serve with all that we are, including our sexuality. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have created marriage. You have created us with the sex drives we have. And thank you that you have provided a way for us to have that satisfied within marriage. I pray that we would redeem marriage, that we would have strong marriages that reflect your goodness, your glory. For those who are single, I pray that they would find strength and contentment in you to serve and to wait upon you as they seek to be your men and women in a corrupt culture. And for all of us, may we continue to rely on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.